Welcome to the Cherry Becker Tax Beat, a conversation about tax that matters. Welcome to this edition of the Cherry Becker Tax Beat. Today is June 22nd, 2021, and today's topic of discussion is the tax implications of SPACs, Special Purpose Acquisition Companies. They're the newest, hottest uh, mechanism for getting companies to go public. So before we delve into that, let's introduce our colleagues today. Um, Sarah. Hi, this is Sarah McGregor calling in from Greenville, South Carolina. Chris. Hi, this is Chris Truitt, uh, transaction tax partner from Charlotte, North Carolina. And Barry. This is Barry Wines. I'm a director in Tampa, Florida with part of our professional practice group. Great. And my name is Brooks Nelson. I'm sitting here in downtown Richmond, Virginia, a very rainy Richmond, Virginia today, I would add. Um, good for our grass. Uh, so, Sarah McGregor, how's life treating you? Life is good today, Brooks. Uh, we're aiming towards that uh, July 4th holiday, which is uh, means the first part of busy season is over with. We got all our compliance work done, and it's time for South Carolina peaches, which is always a good part of the season. I thought they only had peaches in Georgia. They got them in South Carolina, too. You're very confused about who makes the best and the most peaches. All right. I'm not going to start talking about barbecue then, because then we'll get serious. All right. All right. So let's talk a little bit about SPACs, Special Purpose Acquisition Companies. Uh, like I said, these are kind of the hot, trendy items. Um, to get companies listed on the stock exchange. They're uh, shell companies with uh, limited investors and no business operations to start with. Uh, they're also called blank check companies. Uh, they raise funds by going public. And then once they have gone public, the idea is for them to go out and acquire or merge in and operate in business. And then that operating business is, you know, by this uh, process has become a public company and it's more or less a way to cut out a lot of the uh, process the legal the registration all the accounting disclosures of getting that company public so there obviously there are a lot of pros and cons uh, to that kind of uh, process or going about it that way but just to drop some numbers to see uh, what Kind of what the market is thinking right now in 2020 approximately 200 SPACs went public raised 64 billion dollars approximately and that was very equal or close to being equal to what was being raised by the traditional ipo markets in 2021 we already have 300 SPACs that have gone public so there's you know, substantial increase in activity uh, over half the time um, some names you may have heard of that have gone public through the SPAC mechanism, Virgin Galactica, DraftKings, and Open Door. So anyway, exciting, exciting uh, mechanisms, fairly simple on the surface, but as always, the devil's in the details. And so um, the tax consequences, I would say, are far from simple. So Having said all that, let's start with you, Chris. Uh, what's happening in your world with respect to SPACs? It's generally just a, another vehicle other than private equity that we see out there buying companies. So we're dealing with them on a regular basis. 
Um, some are actually formed by some private equity groups uh, to to fund their acquisitions. It's just a easy, relatively easy way to get capital. So we've seen quite a bit of acquisitions. I think we expect to see that to continue unless the SEC creates additional hurdles for the SPACs. I mean, there's definitely been some some roadblocks put up there for the SPACs with respect to some warrants and valuation of warrants, but but overall, um, it's just the volume is is definitely picked up, and we see it as another heavy purchaser in addition to this traditional private equity world. So, if you were just to, you know, again, keeping at a high level, uh, how would you compare and contrast the tax issues by somebody going into the private equity space versus the SPAC space? They're they're very similar issues. I think the the primary difference comes when you're talking about how to get tax deferred rollover equity. Um, it's a little more complicated in a SPAC world. Uh, normally, you have to use some fairly sophisticated structuring like upsea structures, which is basically having a a partnership that effectively can trade their partnership shares for for public stock shares at some predetermined price or exchange rate. Um, but you, you pretty much have to keep the partnership intact for your rollover equity, whereas in a traditional private equity uh, roll up type strategy, you can exchange your stock or your partnership units generally for stock of the of the uh, private equity fund holding company they're using to acquire the company. All right, so you mentioned up C, so I guess we just brief definition, but I guess uh, for people that are familiar with the REIT world, it'd be uh, kind of a parallel to an up REIT structure, I take it? That's exactly right. It's, it's borrowed from that. So it's you, you generally will have partnership units that will have an agreement that can exchange those units for an equivalent number of shares in the publicly traded company. And when you do exchange those shares, you wind up creating a taxable event to the owner of the um, partnership units. So it's uh, generally only a vehicle that people use when it's time to create some additional liquidity for their rollover equity. But the good news is you're only taxed when you actually get the cash. If, That's if, correct. If you're doing it well, right. you're, you're, you're taxed when you exchange the units for the shares, but normally you wouldn't do that unless you're planning to turn around and sell the shares. Yes, fair enough. Good distinction. So, Chris, um, clearly 300 new SPACs this year. That's got to be something that the private equity funds and, and other investors are, are creating this um, founders or sponsors um, for SPACs. So talk a little bit about how those individuals creating the SPACs in the first place are, are taxed. Generally, when they form the company, they issue themselves shares some cases warrants um, and those shares are very inexpensive shares you, you have a shell company right so you're going in you're putting in a small amount of capital and you're getting shares which is a non-taxable transaction um, the 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 real value and the the taxation of those that value comes after you've become a SPAC and you've raised capital and you actually move forward with an acquisition because at that point you've created this value and had significant appreciation in the founder shares. It's it's somewhat akin to a carried interest in private equity, if you will. Um, you come in for very little capital, but you you wind up getting a decent amount of the upside. But the taxation really doesn't happen until you have a liquidity event at some point in the future. 
So is there a downside if, if they can't find a suitable company to acquire uh, for these founders? Uh, not not really. I mean, they they would most likely lose what little bit of capital they've invested because they're going to have to pay out their other um, SPAC investors uh, value that they've, they've contributed to the company before they get some liquidity out of their shares normally. Great. And, and Barry, when do, what about investors? Um, what about the tax consequences to investors putting money in or or when something uh, at a company is acquired? So, so as far as putting the money in, it's just as if they're buying stock on a regular company. So there's generally no tax to the investors for buying that. The complication becomes is generally with when you buy a share in the SPAC, you're going to get a warrant or a partial warrant. So the challenge for those investors is making sure they understand that part of the general, I think it's $10 that most of them are charging, some of that will be allocated to the share of stock and some of that value will be allocated to the warrant. And they just need to be be cognizant of that because generally after the initial sale within 30 to 60 days, the warrants can start trading. So I can hang on to my SPAC share and then sell the warrants and making sure you under that, understand that to compute the proper gain or loss. Is, and is there's there's got to be some fees along the way too for for somebody. Well, and that, that's usually uh, out of the company. The company are paying the fees associated with um, you know a, examining and looking for the targets. So where that's going to come into play is if they don't go through a transaction, then what's going to happen is in theory you get your all of your money back, but not all of it because some of it will have been spent. So you will have a loss on a transaction if the company does not ultimately select a target. Okay, so Barry, you know, um, maybe making it clear in my mind, uh, the SPAC will follow a tax return as a C corp. Correct. Yes. So, so these are generally going to be C corp because they're going to be publicly traded and and they're just generally going to be corporations. And what happens is when they identify the target and they move through the acquisition or they haven't reached that time period, that's called de-spacking. So once they acquire the target or the, the shareholders uh, decide not to go through with the target that the founder or sponsor has put, put forward and they get their money back or their right to redemption, those are generally called the de-spacking transactions. And, and what happens is after the founder has identified the target, the shareholders have to vote on whether to go through with that acquisition. And if you vote no, but they decide to go through with it anyway, because there's more, more uh, four votes, you also generally have the right to redemption and basically back out at that point. Again, you might have a gain or loss depending on how much you're going to get it at that. But at that point, you're more or less just like your typical C-Corp shareholder getting liquidated out of your stock interest, right? Correct. Just and like if you're trading any other stock on the exchange. So if I got my, but at the SPAC level, if I'm going through this uh, acquisition, I typically am not going to have tax at the SPAC level on that either. Am I going through a reverse merger type mechanism? I, am I doing a cat? How am I typically executing that? So as far the SPAC up to the time of the acquisition, it may actually have taxable income because what it's going to do is it's going to take 
all of the funds for selling the shares and stick those in an escrow account. So those are generally going to generate interest. So there may be some interest income and a lot of the costs associated with the acquisition may have to be capitalized. So those earlier years, you may actually have interest income and some, some nominal costs to that it may or may not be taxable, but it wouldn't be significant one way or the other. And then you get into the transaction and generally the transaction, the acquisition of the target is not going to be a taxable transaction to the SPAC itself. Right. And then, then you'll just start filing as a normal operating company. Great. So, Chris, um, you spent a good bit of time working with uh, private equity and portfolio companies and that. What should a, a private company that, you know, a SPAC founder comes calling saying you look like a good target, what should a private operating company or management or owners be thinking about? I think tax aside i think the first thing is the the credibility of the sponsors and the founders of that spac and what are they going to do to help them grow the business and and achieve you know value because normally if you're looking to exit you're looking for a couple of things liquidity and is number one and, and number two is someone to help uh, continue to grow the business and and get some additional value off of rollover equity because in any transaction, you're normally going to still have some rollover equity, especially if you want to continue to be employed by the company and, and help you know, normally get a pretty big second bite at the apple when when that company does sell or grow in value. So it's really about the, the, the credibility, I think, of the founders and the sponsors um, from a tax perspective. Really, it's about having your tax issues together, understanding what your structure is, understanding how to um, enter into a tax efficient rollover type uh, structure. Um, I mentioned earlier the FC structure. So if you're if you're currently structured as a partnership LLC, this tax is a partnership. You need to be thinking about, um, you know, how you're going to keep that partnership intact and how you're going to negotiate that exchange agreement with the SPAC because SPACs can do a couple things when you're in the FC structure world. You can have an exchange agreement that basically trades exactly uh, based on the the trading value of the shares so they kind of trade one for one or you can have a tax reimbursement agreement where if you're a if you're a partner in a partnership and you exchange your partnership units for those shares normally the SPAC will get a step up in tax basis equal to the gain that you recognize on converting your units to shares and that will result in future tax deductions to the SPAC. So if the SPAC is a taxable entity, there's agreements that you can put in place to actually pay you as the seller some portion of those tax savings that you're giving the SPAC by entering into that transaction. So, um, and if you're not a partnership, it's really about making sure you understand how much cash you want to get out of the deal, how much rollover equity you want to you want to stay in. So this could be an opportunity to liquidate out certain um, owners uh, or investors and have another group or any, even incent management or others to continue uh, with the company and uh, the target company and grow it. That's right. Very similar to private equity. I mean, oftentimes the, the founder is going to take the majority of their chips off the table and you'll see maybe some some more upside for the management team that is looking to grow the business going forward that will have the equity going forward. 
So if a company wanted to attract SPAC in uh, uh, acquisition, what are some of the things that, uh, at least from a tax standpoint, they should make sure are cleared up or managed before they get into a due diligence uh, type situation? I think the the best thing you can do is enter into a sell side type preparatory diligence, both from a financial diligence and a tax diligence perspective, because not having your state and local tax issues buttoned up, having bad accounting methods, any anything like that that can create um, a deal, a significant deal issue, you want to make sure you have covered. Um, a lot of transactions now will use um, reps and warranty insurance to cover the risk for the sellers. But if you have significant issues uncovered through a diligence process, the rep and warranty insurers are going to um, not cover those. That They'll have a specific waiver that says we're, we're not going to cover these specific issues. So, um, you know, if you have state and local tax issues, you haven't been filing returns, those kind of things, making sure you've done a detailed nexus study. Um, making sure that to the extent you have not been filing that you've entered into voluntary disclosure agreements with with the various states where you should be filing, um, making sure you've got your sales tax house in order, especially in light of Wayfair. Um, to the extent you're not not filing, make sure that you're also doing voluntary disclosures there, um, which you have to do that when you, when you do a voluntary disclosure agreement, you have to cover state and local income taxes sales and use taxes all have to be covered at the same time. You can't just do one and not the other. So you want to have a thorough understanding of what those issues are because th those tend to be the big issues that stall deals and and actually can kill a deal depending on the size of those liabilities. You know, and one of the other things you need to start to think about if you're going to go that route is are your current advisors the ones who are going to be able to assist you in planning the, the deal and understanding it? These are very complex transactions. These are mergers between corporations, making sure you understand what you need to do for both sides. And sometimes the, 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 the shareholders who um, are, are the advisors who, who got you there, maybe they, you need new ones. So I have two follow-up questions, one for each of you. But Barry, uh, on prior podcast, we've talked a lot about entity selection. So if I'm, you know, back to Sarah's scenario, I have the, the world is my oyster, and I'm starting a private company, or I'm just get start, you know, getting significant revenue in it, and I have my choice of entity. And my ultimate strategy is to get uh, acquired by SPAC. Uh, what entity do I want to be, or what are know some of your decision points in there so it it, uh, it all goes back it doesn't matter the exit strategy as far as entity selection up front uh timing how long before your exit strategy um may be important because as we've talked about before if i'm a c-corp have 1202 and i come into a, a transaction that i'm going to sell a significant portion or cash out if it's five years i'm going to get a very good benefit if not then then i'm not going to get those those benefits or the exclusion if you're a pass-through entity then as as chris was talking about you can potentially do an up c structure and so there's a lot of benefits there so the exit the manner of the exit isn't as much of a driver as the timing and what do you think is going to happen in the interim are you going to be pulling out a lot of cash are you going to be reinvesting a lot of cash so there's a lot of other things that go into that not necessarily on the exit 
Okay. And so, and Chris, my follow-up question for you is we talked, you know, about uh, voluntary disclosure agreements with states, et cetera, um, you know, for your target, but what about the SPAC? What role uh, does location have to play in for the SPAC itself? Uh, I don't I don't think it's significant. I mean, they're going to typically be um, at least most of the ones we've dealt with tend to be U.S. Uh, public companies. I know there are non-U.S., um, but as long as you're a U.S. company, you, you avoid a lot of the issues like passive foreign investment company issues, et cetera, that that are um, probably Barry can talk to in a little more detail than I can. But um, Normally, the the as long as you're in the U.S., you're typically going to see them in Delaware because they don't really have any state um, filing requirements until they actually have an operating trader business. So, um, it's really the foreign jurisdictions that get a little more complex in terms of, of of some of the international tax issues that you might have to address. Yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of uh, SPACs lining up in Canada right now to acquire uh, cannabis-based businesses here in the based here in the U.S. Um, as as one place that's collecting a lot of funds at the moment, waiting to see what happens. Yeah, your challenge there is is the cannabis companies are not eligible to be traded on the U.S. exchanges, so these SPACs are really in Canada. And as far as Chris was talking about with the foreign jurisdiction, the, generally what you're going to want to happen is you want the SPAC to be founded either inside the U.S. if it's going to acquire a U.S. company or outside the U.S. if it's going to acquire a company outside the U.S. If you have cross-border, that's where it gets really complicated and you don't get some of the tax benefits as, a, as an investor. So investors, U.S. investors in foreign SPACs may have other reporting and the income taxation could be different, uh, not what you would normally expect from just buying a stock on the, the regular exchange. Great. Well, um, Chris, so what do you think is on the horizon for SPACs and any tax issues you see that uh, are going to raise some thorny issues? I think SPACs are here for a while. Again, I mentioned earlier, it all comes down to what the SEC chooses to do with SPACs. They, they've, they've put up some roadblocks with the valuation of warrant issues that, that came up of, you know, probably six weeks ago. Um, as, as long as the SEC is permitting these to to be active companies and to continue, I don't see that slowing down anytime real soon. Um, and the, the tax issues, as we've talked about, really aren't significantly different than any other type of uh, entity that's out acquiring companies. And I, I think, uh, too, looking at a private company that is suddenly going to be in the public reporting arena, uh, the accounting and reporting function better get up to speed fast because it's it'll be drinking water from a fire hose. All right, uh, Barry, any final thoughts on your end for tax issues, private companies, the founders, the investors? You know, for the investors are the easiest because their theirs is rather simple. They're investing in literally a stock. Uh, the founders, again, they're getting theirs up front, making sure they do it at the lowest price. It's the private companies and the transaction, the de-spacking transaction, where there's a lot of options and, and um, uh, ways to do things correctly and ways to do things incorrectly. And, and to Sarah's last point is, if you're going to take your company and sell it to a SPAC, 
realizing that the level of accounting and reporting will go through the roof compared to what these these founders are are used to. Uh, you got to make sure you understand that because you don't want buyer's remorse and and realize that I've got to do this on a quarterly basis. I've got to do it timely to get all these reports out. So it's something that 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 people selling to SPACs really need to stop and think about. Now, in theory, that the SPAC founders should be uh, have a team in place that will help and, and do those things. But uh, again, that's just something you need to think about. All right, Sarah, you have any other concluding wrap-up thoughts? Uh, no, this is just terribly exciting and um, a great another vehicle to move private companies into the public playground uh, a lot faster and more efficiently. And I guess my uh, concluding thoughts would be, uh, you know, we point out many times the similarity to this and your private equity or other acquisition transactions. So the need for the planning to get ready for these transactions and the, uh, the really the professional assistance you need guide me through the transaction. Make sure you don't make a major misstep. All righty. Thank you for listening in on our discussion on special purpose acquisition companies or SPACs today. A quick disclaimer that we are not providing tax advice on this podcast. Please consult with your tax advisor, hopefully at Cherry Beckert, with your specific tax issues or discuss information from today's podcast. Check out our website at cbh.com for the latest guidance and materials on this and other tax and business topics. Special plug that we have a three-part series of articles discussing tax transactions on SPACs written by today's guests, Barry and Chris. They are very informative and you can get um, more in-depth than what we covered on today's podcast. All right, so this concludes the podcast on SPACs. Thank you, Chris, Barry, and Sarah. Thank you, our listeners, for spending your time with us. We truly appreciate it. Let's call it a day and go forth in peace.